Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, a special welcome. We uh, hope and trust that your time with us this morning will be a blessing. If you'd open your Bibles, please, to Job chapter 1. And just as you're turning over to that, um, can I just say a few words of introduction? First and foremostly, can I just thank you all, particularly those that are members here at Cornerstone, um, thank you for your prayers. Um, I know I sent out an email earlier in the week just saying we're looking at a new series at the moment from the book of Job. Um, it's, uh, I know, a very precious uh, part of God's word for many, many people, um, and especially if you're going through a hard time or you're suffering, it's especially pertinent. Um, but I've really felt personally um, the answer to those prayers, and so I'm deeply thankful for it. Uh, the book of Job is well known to many, at least in part. Most people know chapter 1 and 2, and most people know chapter 42. Um, but it's really like the two front and back covers of a book. Really, the main part is actually the part that we mostly neglect or overlook. And God willing, in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at that as a way of helping you to dig deeper into God's Word. Can I make a suggestion of something which I've started to do? And I've found it incredibly helpful, and I'd like to encourage us all to do as well. And that's a practice or a spiritual discipline called Scripture journaling. And what it means is that you'll write out the entire book of Job. Uh, only one chapter a day, doesn't take that long, but it will slow you down and it will help you to meditate and to focus on God's Word. Can I put that challenge out to us for at least the next month or so? That each day you'll take a, just a notepad or maybe you might even want to buy a special journal and you will just take the time to write out by hand one chapter of the book of, uh, of, the book of Job each day. Uh, I am sure you'll be blessed. Okay, we're going to be looking this morning at chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading from verse 1 to the end of the chapter, and this is God's Word. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven, seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. 
Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are all dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell down to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, what a serious and somber word we have before us this morning. Talking about such tragedy. Tragedy which many of us have experienced in one form or another or are indeed going through right now. Lord, your word reveals to us how awesome and majestic and righteous and good you also are. 
that as Job confessed, you are rightly worthy of worship. Help us to be able to trust you this morning, Lord, no matter what we're going through, and worship you as well. Deepen our trust in you. Open our eyes that we would see how much you love us despite what our circumstances might be. And Father, bless us, teach us, rebuke us as the case may be. But may we hear your voice speaking to us through your word and may you impress your truths upon our hearts. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I must confess that I am both really excited and really scared about preaching on the book of Job. I'm excited because it's not only God's word, which makes it always perfect and always true, but also because it's the greatest examination of the problem of pain ever written. Just as Ecclesiastes is the best and most concisely written book on the philosophical question about the meaning of life, so too Job is the greatest book ever produced on the subject of suffering. And significantly, the way those truths are presented to us is in the form of a story. The example of one man's loss and pain, rather than, if you stop and think about it, what could have been a long and complicated philosophical analysis of the issue. The Bible takes us to first-hand experience. You really have to stop and marvel at the brilliance of this particular approach because it's something that anyone can engage in. You don't have to be especially smart or gifted intellectually to benefit from a story. But that said, this is not just a simple narrative. Most people are familiar, as I said before, with the events outlined in chapters 1 and 2, and then what the Lord says from the whirlwind in the final part of the book. But the bulk of the book is focused on a series of three cycles of speeches between Job and his three friends. And this takes time and patience to fully appreciate. You have to almost sit in the ashes with Job to grasp their true meaning and significance. Because the book itself is really like an epic poem, much like Homer's The Odyssey or The Iliad. And so you really have to slow down and prayerfully reflect on what each person is saying. When you do, though, you learn some incredible gems. As one commentator I was reading this week put it, reading and a close reading of the book of Job, the most theologically and intellectually intense book of the Old Testament, is a preannually uplifting and not infrequently euphoric experience. The craftsmanship and the finest details, the rain of metaphors, the never-failing imagination of the poet 
are surpassed only by the variety and delicacy of the theological ideas. And so I'm really excited to explore what God has to say to us in the coming weeks in this regard. But it's also why I'm really scared. Because as many a preacher and commentator has found out, God does something really big whenever anyone seriously considers what this part of God's word means. And that is, he makes you experience what Job went through for yourself. He doesn't allow us to simply have more and more head knowledge or intellectual understanding. No. He wants us to know what the book of Job means firsthand. To sit in the ashes with Job and to be tested in a similar kind of way to what this great man of God once was. The great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, whenever God means to make a man great, he always breaks him in pieces first. Whenever God means to make a man great, he always breaks him in pieces first. Oh, how true that is. In his commentary on Job, Steve Lawson goes even further and writes, every Christian will undergo divinely appointed times of suffering. No one escapes this world unscathed. Such suffering does not occur because there is anything wrong about a person's life. To the contrary, adversity often comes because everything is right about one's life. A believer may be marked to suffer because he or she stands tallest for God. One who is deeply rooted and grounded in Christ should never be surprised when such times of adversity come. Like Job, a person of great faith will suffer by divine appointment, Lawson says, for the sake of righteousness. Steve Lawson knew exactly what this meant through first-hand experience. As he started preaching on the book of Job, the manuscript of which was to later he intended to form the basis of a commentary, Lawson said in his own words, all hell broke loose. He had to resign from his job as a pastor through a series of unfair and quite bizarre set of circumstances. And he went from preaching from quite literally a marble pulpit to 4,000 people each week to preaching in a warehouse. Spurgeon was right. Whenever God means to make a man great, he always breaks him to pieces first. What might the Lord have planned for us this year? Has he divinely appointed for some of us to be found worthy to suffer like his servant Job? Is he maybe even boasting in heaven right now that there is no one like... Well, I don't want to name names, but how would you feel if it was your name being mentioned? 
Or maybe should, I should just ask, do you want to be great? Would you continue to trust and worship the Lord if he allowed Satan to take away some or maybe even all of the things that you cherish most? Would you still worship him? Your money, your family, even your own personal wealth or health and well-being? Brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't say anything like this lightly because these are massive questions to ask. Are you prepared to give an answer? We turn then to the opening chapter of the book of Job. I'm confident that it's pretty familiar to most of us. As you can see from your outlines, I've divided it up into three main points, all centred around the phrase, a day. Uh, because that's a phrase that comes up repeatedly in the first and second chapters. Can I just give you another hint when you're reading the book of Job? Read it in at least two different translations. The Hebrew, the original language that the book of Job was written in, is notoriously difficult. And so you'll see that there's certain nuances that come from various translations. It's very helpful to do. Now, it's not really clear in the NIV, but verse 4 says this. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. Which is probably a reference to his own birthday or a special celebration or something like that. Then in verse 5 it says, When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. This whole opening section of the book of Job then is characterised by blessing. Or you might say, Days of consecration. And it really sets the context for the rest of the book. Let's just stop then and reflect on all of the different ways that the Lord's blessing was being manifested in Job's life. Verse 1, he's described as being blameless and upright. Verse 2, he has seven sons and three daughters, bringing a total of ten children, which is a perfectly full or rounded number. Then in verse 3, we're told he is not just rich in blood, but also in possessions, owning 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, and so many servants that they're not even counted. From a biblical, ancient Near Eastern perspective, this guy had it all. So much so that the second half of verse 3 says that he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. But not only was Job wealthy, he was also wise. According to verse 5, he even acts as a type of high priest, of someone who offers sacrifices to God, not just for himself, but even for the potential sins of his children just in case they might have cursed God in their hearts. Now, the theme of cursing is something we're going to come up again and again and again in the book of Job. In fact, in just a moment, Satan tries to tempt Job to curse God and Job's wife explicitly tells him to do just that. But for now, what we really need to grasp is that Job is presented as the ideal Israelite, except he isn't. 
For Job comes from the land of Uz, which, as we learned from the book of Obadiah last year, thank you, Isaac G., uh, for that recommendation, Uz is in the region of Edom, which means that Job is a descendant of Esau rather than of Jacob. If you're taking notes, then you can even jot down Lamentations 4.21. Lamentations 4.21. For there, the connection between the land of Uz and the land of Edom is made explicit. They're one and the same. Jeremiah says that the land of Edom and Uz are one and the same place. Now, while it's really hard to be sure, Job is probably living very early on in Israel's history, even before it had properly been formed as a nation. That also seems to be confirmed by the presence of these two groups, the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, which we'll be hearing of more shortly. The point we simply need to grasp right now, though, is that Job hadn't done anything in and of himself to deserve what is about to happen which means that the religious equation that we so often hear that suffering equals sin is simplistic to say the least. It's just not always the way things work in God's world. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes the Lord chastens those whom he loves as a form of discipline. 1 Corinthians 11, for instance Some of the believers fall sick and even die because of how they were treating one another during the Lord's Supper. Or in the book of Numbers, Miriam is inflicted with leprosy because she proudly rebels against the leadership of Moses. Or in James chapter 5, we read that we are to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another so that what? So that we may be healed. So clearly the Lord does something um, or sometimes use trials and physical sufferings as a form of punishment or as discipline. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes. But that doesn't mean that suffering is always a result of having sinned. That was the mistake the disciples themselves famously made in John chapter 9. Remember, they questioned Jesus about the man who was born blind and who was responsible for his suffering. Was it the man who was born blind or was it his parents? And the answer that Jesus clearly gives, it was neither. For sometimes there is something else going on. Something which will only ever be fully appreciated if we could peel back the veil and peer into the heavenly courtroom where the Lord and his divine counsel dwell. As one commentator I was reading put it, we are suddenly reminded that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in many philosophies. Steve Lawson describes this whole situation as the invisible war, the invisible war, because not only can't we see what is occurring in the heavenly realms, but so often what happens here on earth is part of a much greater, a much broader cosmic conflict. We read in verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves to the Lord, 
and Satan also came among them. The sons of God are a reference to the heavenly spiritual beings which surround God's throne, angels and whatnot. But what is really surprising is that the devil, or as he is referred to here, Satan, is also there. It's almost as if the devil is one of God's employees who has to report in and bundy on for work and report on what he has been getting up to. Now note that he's not a free agent, but that he is completely under God's direction and control. It's a powerful reminder that nothing and no one is outside of the Lord's sovereign control. There is no yin and yang, no equal battle between light and darkness, good and evil. No, as Martin Luther used to say, the devil is God's devil. He alone is the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe, both here on earth as well as with those in heaven. And so while the devil might be a prowling lion looking for someone to devour, as the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, we also need to keep in mind that Satan is on a leash. He doesn't have the freedom to do whatever he wants, but can only operate within the parameters of which the Lord God Almighty sovereignly curtails or puts around him. That's precisely why Satan complains to God that he has put a hedge around him so that he can't be touched. It's almost comical if it wasn't so serious. God's boasting in Job. Have you considered someone like my servant Job in all your wanderings? Well, that's no good. You put a hedge around him. I can't touch him. Do you ever stop? And consider how good the Lord is to you on a day-by-day basis. That the reason why you and I are not suffering more is because we have a heavenly Father who loves us and protects us. Even your next breath is provided for and sustained by him. And he would only have to snap his fingers and our lives would be extinguished in an instant. Our bodies would collapse and we return to the dust from which we came. You see, why is it that you arrived safely at church this morning? Because of the sovereign care of Jesus. Why is it that you have food on your table and clothes on your back? Because God in his goodness and grace has given you the ability to earn money and the wisdom to use it. Why is it that your body is relatively healthy and not completely overcome with illness or infection? Because as verses 3 to 5 of Psalm 103 says, we have a Lord who forgives all our sins and heals all our diseases. Who redeems our very lives from the pit and crowns us with love and compassion. Who satisfies our desires with good things and renews our youth like the eagles. Do you stop and thank God for all that he has done and is continuing to do for you each and every day? 
if we're honest with ourselves, then I think we'd all admit that none of us does this anywhere near as much as we should or could. We're, all, we're like the lepers in Luke 17, who after being miraculously healed, only one comes back to say thank you. The rest simply go on with their renewed lives. But everything I've just said also raises an immediate question. And for some, a deeply personal objection. And that is, you might be thinking, yeah, but what about me? I'm not wealthy like Job. In fact, I have a lot of debt. And it's worrying me sick. And I'm definitely not as fruitful as Job. Indeed, my husband and I have desperately tried to have a child. And even though we fervently prayed and done all that we can, we've been unable to conceive. Job and his wife had 10 children. I'd be happy with just one. And all this talk about how the Lord is healing all my diseases. Do you even know how serious my illness is? Why hasn't the Lord decided to heal me? Why hasn't he heard my heart-wrenching prayers? Our friends, we have to stop and acknowledge the seriousness of each and every one of those questions. And if you're in any of those type of situations right now, then you please know that we grieve and mourn with you. There are no easy answers. But this is where our knowledge of what took place in heaven between the Lord and Satan is also so helpful. Because Satan's vicious and incredibly shrewd accusation against God is that he can only buy worshippers for himself. That people only worship him, not for who he is, but for what he gives. According to the devil, the Lord God Almighty is no better than a kind of spiritual Santa Claus. Who's only there when we really need him, and even then, just once or twice a year. In this sort of worldview, God is like the fire station or the ambulance. You drive past it well enough and it comforts you to know that it's there when you need them, but hopefully you never will. Can I just say, how insulting and disrespectful is that? That the one who made you and sustained you and loves you and cares for you intimately each day, you just ignore him? What Satan accuses God himself here of doing is truly demonic and from the pit of hell. It's like only loving your mum and dad because of what they provide rather than the fact that they've given you birth. That regardless of how difficult things are or you might have been, Nothing can change the fact that you are their child. And as such, you are and will continue to be the recipient of their unconditional love and grace. 
Once again, though, the Lord sovereignly puts parameters around what the devil might do because he knows perfectly what each and every one of us can handle. As the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. The Greek word here, by the way, friends, can also mean tested. Both are true. God is sovereign over our temptation and he's sovereign over our testing. That's part of the reason why we pray, don't we, in the Lord's Prayer? Keep us not from temptation. It's a wonderful promise we should keep in mind. For by the grace of God, the full extent of what happened to Job, thankfully, never happens to any of us. Take a look again with me at verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Because the devil targets Job with four distinct arrows, all of which are let loose on exactly the same day. Verse 13 opens with... Now there was a day, and oh, what a day it was. First, the Sabaeans come and steal all of Job's oxen and donkeys and put all of his servants to death. Second, something which is described as being the fire of God, oh, the irony, falls from the sky and burns up all of his sheep. Third, three separate waves of Chaldean raiders swoop down and take off with his camels. And then fourth, and most horrifically of all, On the exact same day that all of this takes place, a mighty wind comes in from the desert and all of God's children are killed. Now, I don't know about you, but even if only one of those things happened to me, I'm not sure how I'd respond. I'm often devastated when just one thing goes wrong in my life, not several What an unbelievably horrible day of calamity. It really couldn't have gotten any worse, although it will. Wait till next week and we come to chapter 2. It's so bad, in fact, that you would think that the whole thing is made up. That maybe, maybe this is some kind of melodramatic literary creation of extreme, you know, human tragedy. But the events of Job are not a story that have been made up, but historical events which really happened. We know this is the case because other parts of Scripture, such as the book of Ezekiel, refer to Job as being a real man. So don't try to sort of wiggle out of thinking, well, it's extreme, but it probably never really happened. It's talking more about metaphorical truths and no The Bible says this is what really took place. (coughs) Pardon me. How Job responds, though, is a beautiful example of genuine godly faith. Because rather than curse God, as Satan had predicted, Job humbles himself in worship. And he says in verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And then in the very next verse it says, In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. She's given me permission to tell you this. But one of my wife, uh, Angie's greatest fears, was the possibility of having to deliver a stillborn child. 
to go through all of that physical pain and receive none of the joy at the end. But in one of her pregnancies, that is exactly what happened. She'd gone to the ultrasound with her um, appointment with her sister, her twin sister, who was really excited. She'd never been to one of the ultrasounds with her before. But even before she got to the hospital, she knew that something was wrong. And even though she was not full term, she had to be induced and to deliver the child in hospital a few weeks later. I was there with her that day and I was amazed at how calm and even at peace she was. This was the thing she feared most. But she said to me that God kept speaking into her heart the words of this verse. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And she just kept saying those words to herself over and over and over again. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. She didn't know why something as terrible as this had happened. But she trusted that the Lord was in control. And the words of Job 1.21 sustained her in a very real and powerful way. I don't know what particular trial you might be going through at present, but can you dare to say the same thing? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. There's great comfort to be found in doing so, of humbling yourself before the Lord's mighty hand so that in due time he might lift you up. John Wesley once said that the greatest strength of the early Methodists, because he was the founder of Methodism, the greatest boast he would have is he said, our people die well. What an incredible thing to say. We're all going to die and none of us really know when. But the question for us is when that day comes, will we die well? Will we face the death of our bodies with the sure and certain hope of resurrection? Will we die with the confident assurance that because of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, we'll be saved? Don Carson tells the story of his wife, who was herself diagnosed with cancer, who once prayed for another lady at church that prayer. Lord, I pray that my sister in Christ would die well. Carson said people were really upset. Shouldn't you be praying only for her healing? Wouldn't the Lord be more glorified in her recovery? Well, it's true that the Lord heals, isn't it? He often intervenes in all kinds of wonderful ways. But as we also all know, sometimes his will is to take us home. 
to leave this present world and to enter into the place Jesus has prepared for us. What greater witness to the gospel can there be than to die well? To show those around us, especially those who do not believe, that there is one whose power and love is stronger than death. That has conquered the grave. Or are we tempted to give in to Satan's accusation that we only worship God because of what he gives us? That was at the heart of one of his temptations leveled at Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, wasn't it? Satan offered to Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if he would but worship him. But just like Moses, Jesus knew that it was better to be mistreated along with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And Jesus says, you are to worship him only. Do we really believe that? Do we believe that he is still righteous and good, even though all hell should rail against us? Can you say with Job, blessed be the name of the Lord? I often think of the words of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who said when they were threatened with death, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But then they say this. They say, but even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Friends, that's what true faith in God is like. It's not just believing God for the favourable outcome. It's believing God for any outcome. Believing God for who he is. It's demonstrated in worshipping God. For worshipping him rather than for what he might do. Ultimately, though, we can trust in God because of what he has done for us in and through his son. He died so that we might live. And nothing can separate us from that love. Nothing. So keep looking to Jesus. Put your hope in his victory over the grave. That death itself has been defeated. And we no longer have anything to fear. And may the name of the Lord be praised. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a... uh, What a profound word we've heard from you this morning. Oh, how we've seen you high and lifted up on your throne, far above all authority here on earth as well as in heaven. Lord Jesus, you have defeated death by dying, rising again and ascending into heaven. Lord, we want to pray for ourselves and each other that no matter what our circumstances are right now, you would give us the grace 
to trust you, to praise you, to know that you are loving and that you are good. Even though our circumstances might scream at us otherwise. Father, bless us, we pray. For the glory of your name. Amen.